Welcome to the Men of Magic, an interview podcast that gets into the lives of your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities, with your hosts, Robert Martin and Chris Atwood. And now, the Men of Magic begins. Welcome to another episode of the Men of Magic. This week I'm with Kelly Reed. I'd like to apologize in advance. There are some audio issues with this, so I had to re-record the intro of the show and make some heavy edits to the show. But let's welcome Kelly Reed to the Men of Magic. Say hello, Kelly. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. Appreciate your on the time of the show. Why don't you tell us all how quiet speculation began for you? Um, I believe I started quietspec.blogspot.com in May of 2000, early May of 2009. Okay. And that was at that point just my personal blog. Um, I remember the exact minute I started it. I think it was like four in the morning. I couldn't sleep, and uh, I was up reading some tournament results. And um, I had just bought a bunch of uh, Sig River Cutthroats after Grand Prix Seattle Tacoma for about a quarter a piece on, uh, from some dealer. Uh, I got them in, and I traded everyone I had the next week for like four bucks and, or three dollars in cash. And at that point, I was like, wait a minute. There's something here. I had, um, after I graduated college, I had taken an interest in uh, finance and uh, stock trading. And I was actually planning to go into that arena professionally, but that, that was the same time that the markets... Uh, I actually sat for the Series 7 exam, which is what you need to be a stock trader. And through that, I learned all the principles of you know, finance, how to trade, how to identify underpriced assets. And uh, when I moved out to Indiana in uh, February of 2009, I got back into magic as a way to make friends and meet people because uh, I didn't know anybody out here. So the two kind of collided at a very unlikely time. I didn't have a lot of money, and um, I had basically a box of shards of a lot. So I got started with an Elspeth Knight errand, and I started trading and trading and trading. Um, I followed deck lists so I could get a competitive advantage because I didn't have enough money to build a, a five-color control deck or um, a fairies deck. So my goal was to build the most competitive deck I could with almost no money. That deck turned out to be Red Deck Wins, and I went on to dream crush many small children at many Friday Night Magics. So I remember the exact day I started it. It was early May, right around my birthday, and uh, probably about two years ago, almost to the day right now, appropriately enough, I looked at that trade I did with the Sig River Cutthroat, and I started looking at other deck lists that might have implications. So I thought, okay, Ruined Halo. Everyone's been playing decks that, you know, lose to Ruined Halo. So let's make a note to myself, maybe Ruined Halo is going to go somewhere. So I put up a post like, a, you know, a stock trader blog would, with the duration, I said, this is how much it's going to be in this time frame. I don't even remember what I said anymore. And um, I just kept doing it as a way to sort of keep track of my own thoughts and my own trades. From there, uh, I started, you know, promoting it, you know, just showing other Magic players that I knew, like, over Instant Messenger or whatever at the local shop. No one cared. Everyone thought it was the dumbest idea in the world, and it really wasn't meant to be a popular thing. I did it just for me, for the, just for the love of the game. But uh, eventually, I started being active on forums, like on Star City Games' forum and on MTG Salvation. Those were the two big ones. Uh, I had the link in my signature. Uh, it was still running on blog on bloggers' uh, hosted blogspot domain. And people steadily started reading it. Um, 
I took care to write some good ad copy in my signature, like, hey, check back every day this summer for more financial updates. You know, I really tried to promote it like it was a big site, even though it was just one guy in a computer, which uh, turns out is the right way to handle yourself, because eventually people assume you're big and treat you like you're big, and now, you know, we have actual readers. So the big break came. I got uh, a few people at Star City saw the blog, recognized that I might, you know, actually know what I'm talking about. And uh, they said, hey, would you like to come work our booth at U.S. Nationals in Kansas City? And, of course, you know, I, I got out there on my own dime, earned a couple bucks for uh, rent money, working for them, and got to meet some good people. Now, while I was there, I met uh, the one and only Evan Irwin. And uh, he had actually seen my stuff. And um, this was, I think, before Star- this was before he worked for Star City, but he, they were already sponsoring him. He went and... Uh, put me on his show. I said, hey, can I just, uh, can you throw me on camera and I'll just wing it. I'll just figure out what to say. And he he was really enthusiastic about it, gave me a shot, and uh, I even remember looking at that video and thinking, man, I am a hot, sweaty, fat mess right now. I still look at that video to this day and I'm embarrassed because I just worked, you know, four hours, or four days at U.S. National, almost ten hours a day, and I was a mess, but I still managed to hold it together. And um, he let me have a weekly segment on his show. And that took our viewership from about 100 viewers to 1,000 overnight. It was kind of like the big break every blogger hopes for. And after that, you know, it just it went from my own personal blog to it just kept growing. People kept demanding more content and more content and more content. And eventually I couldn't keep up. So I started trying to find other people who could do some editing, like Lauren Lee did a little bit of editing for me here and there. Like I had some guest authors. And eventually, it just kind of, it just blossomed into what you see today. There was a, there's a lot of steps in between, but that's sort of the overview. When, when things started going big for you, and you started to put out the call for more writers, how difficult was it to screen them to get what you're looking for out of them? You know, it was a lot easier than I expected it to be. Uh, um, I've had a lot of experience being in editing. Um, I'm lucky that I come from a family of writers and journalists, uh, among other things. So I've got, you know, I've got good people to help me on that, that regard. But really, I was just, like I said, just winging it off the cuff. A lot of people expressed interest in writing for me, even when I was just a blog, and I actually wanted to keep, keep the brand really, really knit and really tight. So I actually declined to write a lot of people uh, who asked unsolicited. Once I started realizing, hey, I can't do this by myself, I started putting out the call and finding people who were into it. And, you know, I didn't have any money. If the site was just a blog, I didn't have any money. So it was really just looking for people who wrote for the love of the game. And luckily in Magic, we have a huge contingent of people who are willing to do just that. Uh, And, of course, I was one of them. I wasn't making any, you know, I made a couple bucks off, like, Google AdSense or something, but it really didn't matter. I got, like, a check for a hundred bucks once, and I think I bought groceries with it. That was the extent of our monetization strategy. So, as far as filtering people and screening people, um, I just told every, anybody who was interested to submit me what they had, submit me a short uh, excerpt or an abstract or something, and I'd go from there. Uh, most people submitted pretty good work. Uh, I'm a pretty harsh editor, as most people can attest. Uh, I definitely had a few people who got pretty pissed off at me because I edited their work too heavily. Um, uh, there's a guy you might have heard of. I think his name is like John Medina or something. He really, really didn't like what I did to his piece. Um, and we had some words over it, which uh, 
turned, it was funny, it started this whole feud between the two of us that eventually culminated in both of us sort of eating humble pie, apologizing, and now we're, now we're buddies, so it was tough. I've, I've, heard, of, I've heard of that John Medina character. I think he, I think he does podcasting once in a while. He trades magic cards, I don't really know. No, John's... John's one of the best people in the game as far as what, what I do. I mean, I, I look, I mean, as funny as it is to say, I look up to him because he's so good at what he does and he's so friendly and personable. There's, there's really no one better to learn from. So, screening people was tough because you had to make tough decisions. You had to be honest with people. Like, for example, the most common thing was just people who just lacked a sense of flow. It's really hard to phrase that or couch that in a way that isn't, you're a terrible writer. You have to learn to... You know, I've never edited a professional magazine before. I've never edited, like, a student magazine before. So I was really learning it all as I went along, and I made a lot of mistakes. It's tough to keep people's egos from, you know, tanking while still being a good editor and giving them good feedback. Now, with with the expansion now and all these writers you have now, you have a writer on your group that... Joins another one of my podcasts on the Manus Group, Corbin. What was it like to get Corbin and have him be a part of the team? And what do you think of his work? And what do you think he's going to be able to do for you down the line? Well, I mean, Corbin's been an amazing asset. He was one of the earliest people I brought on board. Um, I'm not even remembering how we got in touch. I think he just shot me an email one day and said, hey, I'd like to write for you. And because I was literally just looking at anybody who wanted to write, I said, "Sure, submit me an, you know, an excerpt." His work was good. Um, he's, you know, he's never given any of my, you know, me or my editors a problem. He's just an exemplary writer. His work is always good. He's active on the competitive scene, and he's a trader, so he, you know, he's got both perspectives. And uh, we can go back to this when we discuss uh, getting into competitive play as a trader. But uh, he seems to balance that correctly. You know, I, I really can't speak. I can't speak any more highly of the guy. He's really just the best. Um, and what else is there to say? He, he always produces good content week in and week out. You know, a lot of writers sometimes struggle with deadlines, or you know, he he doesn't really. He always gets his work in on time. It's always good work. I've never really had to. Yeah, he's an editor's dream. Sometimes you actually forget he's there, and that, I say that in the best possible way because as an editor, especially when you're not managing each writer yourself, because I have section editors now, um, the less you hear about a writer beyond their work, the better it is. So we've had a couple writers who it's always been this excuse, that excuse, you know, oh, well, this needs to be fixed, that needs to be fixed, What? too many questions, not enough questions. I, you know, he's just been exemplary. There's really, I couldn't ask for anyone better. So I'm so grateful that he's a part of the team. It has been for so long. It's been so loyal. There. Now, your staff's grown by leaps and bounds. I mean, literally, you have uh, you have a very large staff. How does, and you're breaking it now up into, you know, different segments of the game to encompass everybody so the site can be kind of a, a one-stop shop for whatever type of Magic player you are. It's It's got to be, it had to be challenging to get the right people to do the right stuff because... You know, not everybody can write about the different segments of magic and how that relates to. Sure, it's it's definitely a big challenge, and um, the decision to do that was one that I struggled with for a long time. Our main brand is and is always going to be the 
financial handle. We are a financial site about trading card games. That's what we do. However, I believe that you can't just evaluate finance in a vacuum from the perspective of trading. You need a more holistic view of the game as a whole and of the community as a whole. So we're not trying to be the best standard site or the best legacy site or the best commander site or what have you. But we find it's really important to have people who are among the best in those areas. Uh, Josh Justice comes to mind. He doesn't. He writes. He does some financial stuff because he's a pretty savvy trader and all-around smart guy. But I mean, this is a guy. This is a kid who's qualified for the Pro Tour. He's always at Grand Prix. He's he's a great player. And um, having him writing stuff strictly about strategy shows people who aren't working at that higher level of the game. First of all, what they could aspire to be if they wanted to play, and second of all, it gives them the perspective of somebody who's been on the Pro Tour, who's been in the Grand Prix circuit, who's day-twoing things, and who's winning things. So you can't just uh, evaluate it in the vacuum. You have to have the perspective. Same with Commander. You know, it's easy to, to look at deck lists and say, well, this is popping up more and more in these Commander lists, or in these standard lists, I should say. But with Commander, it's like, well, there's no Star City Opens, or there's no TCG player qualifiers or PTQs that are commanders, so you need to rely on what you know the community sites are saying. We find it very important to have as I said, a holistic view of the community. You can't just go with one angle. Even if your one angle is your main focus, you can't just stick to that. As far as the challenges, it's been very tough to figure out who to put where, but by and large we've got a great team. Um, Adam, who's written for Mana Nation, now Gathering Magic, uh, the Mothership, he edits and writes for our casual side, which encompasses things like commander, pre-constructed decks, and just general kitchen table play. He's been the right guy for it, because he's not a competitive player. He doesn't want to be. But he's got a passion for cube drafting. He's got a passion for magic in general. And he just knows what he's doing. He's got good judgment. And that's the most important thing in an editor is good judgment. You can't teach good judgment. You can cook. Coach it, but you can't. Sourcing editors is always difficult because you can't coach a judgment. You can't teach judgment. You can sort of coach it, but you don't want to start from zero. So, like I said, Adam Staborski has been wonderful with the casual editor. Dylan Lurch uh, is our competitive spike guy. And uh, having a competitive poker background, he's the perfect guy for the job. His work during Worlds, um, exposing the uh, Callblade deck, and discussing, or Call Go was back then, really drew a lot of hits to the site, and his uh, midnight coverage really, really helped the site a lot. Um, I think it established us as at least, you know, we just started doing the, the spike thing, and at least showed, hey, you know, we're may, we not be the best yet, but we're serious about this. So we have, uh, I was doing the financial editing, but now we have David Conrad, who uh, is on Doug Lynn, new from... Uh, living in Bloomington. He's been phenomenal. He was the first editor we brought on board. He started off as an intern, and uh, after a couple months, I was like, hey, you know, you're you're just crushing this. Would you like to, would, can we pay you a couple bucks and you do this, you know, to the exclusion of anything else? He took that over, and that then freed me up to start working on development, back-end things, networking, marketing, all the stuff that I need to do to promote the site, but I couldn't because I was spending all my time editing articles. Uh, we actually have a new editor coming on board. Uh, I don't believe we've made that public yet, but uh, keep you know by the time this airs, it might be public. So keep an eye. We have a new segment coming out, um, and I have some big plans for 
that. But um, you guys will have to just wait and see, see what's up with that. We wanted to talk a little bit about the ticker, because that's the one thing when I first came to the site that <laughs> I saw instantly caught my eye. You talked about your background about wanting to bet you were going to be in the stock market, and this is like a living, breathing CNBC stock ticker that you see on the screen all the time. Was that your idea, and how often does that thing update? Okay, well... First of all, it was my it was my idea. It was my brainchild, but I had almost no hand in building it myself. Uh, I thought, hey, I'm doing this site about magic finances, and the prices change fairly quickly. Why not have a stock ticker? Wouldn't that be cool? Like it was honestly never even meant to be functional. Oh, like I don't know if anybody's using it for price quotes, but it's just a flavor thing. Because deep down, we've all got a little Borthos in us. I think that's the right. Psychographic, but we, we all kind of get a kick out of it. We think it's a cute little thing to do, uh, and I have to say that was uh, Ross over at the Black Lotus Project who built that for me. It's um, actually puts pulling daily updates from eBay via the um, Magic Traders website. They're using some sort of robot to aggregate eBay prices, and uh, we figured that was the best way to go about it. So he has some database that he's running that's using their data to you uh, to chart all the magic card prices uh, at blacklotusproject.com. And he said, you know, hey, it's a great way to get exposure for my own site. It would be a favor to your site, and I really like your site. Let's do it. So uh, it's actually, people don't, I don't people realize this, it's, it's available for you to put on your site too, um, to go to blacklotusproject.com. But, uh, you know, always remember where you saw it first. It was just a cool idea we had, and we thought, Hey, you know what? Screw it. Why not? The website has done some dramatic changes as far as graphics, other things like that. What has been the driving change to make it more visually pleasing and easy to work with? Um, I think it. I think it changed when I bought my first Apple computer. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I've always been a very aesthetic person. Um, I was for a long time in high school. I was doing a lot of artwork, photography, painting, drawing, and I actually wanted to go to art school. Um, unfortunately, my hands are far too steady, to ever, unsteady rather, to be a good artist. So I've always had an eye for design, I like to think, and I really like things to be beautiful. Even if they're functional, I think beauty is important. And I think if you're on the, if you're on the web, if you're on the internet, there's so much competition and you need to differentiate yourself. Uh, there are some sites out there that look great, there are some out there that look terrible. Um, and I feel like if you're running a website, it's on you to make your users feel at home and calm and at peace when they're reading your content. I don't believe in a lot of flashy distractions. Um, the extent to, to which is we've got the banners that display the article images, but we don't like running um, ads. And we think having a good user experience is really important online because you've only got their attention for a minute or two if you're lucky. The driving force was really just constant and relentless improvement. Uh, until that site has every magic player reading it every day, my job isn't done. So any way I can make it more accessible to a new reader or an old reader, I have to keep working. You decided to make part of it a, a pay site, uh, the insider yes. site. What spawned that, and how's that been going? Um, well, I should preface it by saying I actually can't discuss any firm numbers for legal reasons. We're, ha we're really happy with it. We're really, um, we actually got a better turnout than we expected for our signups. Um, we're really happy with the fact that a lot of people showed their support by, you know, paying for content. And while I love the fact that a lot of magic content is free, I don't believe that's a sustainable model for the community in the long run. 
So it was part sort of political agenda and part the fact that, you know, as we kept growing, we do need to pay bills. Um, I don't really see much money from the site myself because, uh, you know, I do other things for money, and I like to reinvest the money rather than just take it out. But the main factor was we wanted to bring on a ton of writers, and we wanted to bring on a full editorial staff, and we wanted to pay for good web hosting and get, you know, good tech people. And all of that costs money. So we came to two, there were a few options. One was we all funded out of our own pockets, and uh, frankly, that's just not something any of us were willing. When I say us, I mean Doug Lynn and myself. Doug is uh, the other owner of the site, our business manager. And none of us really have the luxury of funding a site out of our own pockets right now. Um, I wish I could, but that's just not the way it works. So I sort of viewed it like, uh, I grew up watching a lot of public television, like uh, PBS, and so I figured, let's give the readers a chance to determine their own engagement in the site. Well, hey, we'll give you some free content, because I believe that there should always be some free content, or else you'll never get new members. But let's let our best writers get an honest paycheck by doing good work and letting the readers vote for who's doing the best work by paying us. So it's gone really well. Um, we got a little flack from a few people, but the, uh, we expected a lot more flack and a lot less support. Um, I don't recommend it for every site, but for our position, at our level of uh, membership, or readership, I should say, you know, you start having to look at web hosting costs as a real monthly expense. I mean, it doesn't compare to running, you know, to renting a house or running a retail store. But, you know, once you start getting tens of thousands of readers, you need to start paying for good, solid web hosting. We just had, it just came down to, we had bills to pay, and we needed a way to pay them, and we figured, hey, if our readers really like what we're, we're doing, then some small percentage of them will be willing to contribute, and that's exactly what happened. It's really amazing thing to be able to work and work out correctly, because a lot of times, there are a lot of issues with that, and like you said, you will get the occasional feedback from people that just say, this is not what I want to deal with, but the good thing about what you've managed to do is you didn't, like, make everything pay. You made, you made a segment of it, so there are still people that can get to some of your articles, but yet the ones that, you know, that are more intensive and more on a higher level, they, they should be paid because of that. And I think that's a real advantage that you have here, and I'm glad it's working out well for you on that end. So what is next for the site? What's your big piece of it? One, sorry, one thing I wanted to add on to the membership thing was um, – we tried to keep the articles behind the paywall uh, financially based to the, to the best of our ability because the way we see it is if we're giving up information that we could be using to trade with, we're losing money by just you know disseminating it to the public. I'll be honest. If I have, if I have a sick call on something that's going to shoot up in price, why not just go buy them all myself and keep my mouth shut? If I tell other people about it and then buy it, there's all kinds of annoying disclosure issues, um, which I always I always try to disclose anything I have a huge position in before I write about it. But frankly, it's like, well, if we're going to give up all these good tips, which we usually do, then I feel like if we're making you money, can't you guys just do a little for us too? And that's what most people think, and most people agree with that. Now, to answer your question about the future... That's a pretty tough question. The web's uh, it's a it's a fast-paced market. There's a lot that's going on. There's a lot that needs to be taken into account on a daily and weekly basis. So we are just we just take it day by day. We look at uh, what's going on today. We look at our numbers. We look at what the market wants, and we try to react. We look at mainly where the interest in magic lies, 
and we try to adapt to that. So, you know, Commander's been pretty popular lately, and we've been very slowly bringing on some Commander writers. Uh, Legacy's getting pretty popular, and we've been increasing our Legacy content. Um, a lot of people have noticed we've done ebooks in the past. Um, those are sort of a new thing for us. We're not sure how we feel about them. Uh, they've been selling great, but we're not sure if they're part of our brand identity or not, though. We're just looking for new uh, ways to engage our readers. It's, I have to say what my most exciting growth area is in my mind, it's uh, data projects. I've been talking to a lot of people in Magic about data projects because with the amount of processing power that modern computers have and the amount of information that's available on the web about Magic, we can really start looking at ways to do quantitative analysis of metagames, of deck lists, of individual tournaments. Uh, I actually have an article I haven't published yet that uh, hypothesizes the relationship between card prices, deck lists, tournament finishes, and player rating. Uh, though I haven't quite finished the model yet, and I'm not sure if it works, we're just looking at ways we can actually do technical analysis given all the data available to Magic players. So as far as what's next, uh, we, we'd like to react. We'd like to see what's going on, and we'd like to try to be the first band. Let's look at the fact that you have been, obviously you turned this, like you said, from uh, the SIG to what it is now. What, it, what was your first initial impressions on the fact that when your writer wrote about Squadron Hawks and they were a common, to see this common card jump to the fact that now there were legitimately people buying sets of foil ones for a hundred dollars. To you, how what was that like when you saw when you hear something that a common foils going for four four hundred? As somebody who started playing Magic right around when uh, Revised and Fallen Empires was on the shelves, I never thought I'd see the day. Um, but then again, I've been in this game for quite some time. I've seen a lot of things happen. So at this point, I don't think anything will surprise me. I never thought I'd see a rare hit a hundred dollars, what I called timer life in a hundred. You know, I never thought I'd see. Something higher than a rare got get printed. Then we printed Mythics. I never thought they'd make Planeswalkers a card, but then they did it. Um, at this point, uh, nothing is going to surprise me in Magic except it's, you know, the only thing that would surprise me on Magic is if it's uh, if it just disappeared overnight, and there's too many people that love the game for that to happen. So at this point, nothing really surprises me. You know, if somebody wants to pay $25 for a foil common, Great. That's the, you know, it's an open market. No one's dictating these prices. Um, we can always talk about how this dealer or that dealer is trying to price fix or whatever, but the fact of the matter is, it's an open market, you know. I've seen accusations of dealers trying to, like, do price fixing, but honestly, there's always eBay. You can always go on eBay and work against an open market. So, if, you know, if those places, the squadron hot coils are eBaying for 100 bucks, that means there's more than one person out there willing to pay that much. Do, do I think that's wise? No. Am I going to tell anybody else how to spend their own money? Absolutely not. Uh, it's, I think it's crazy, but without having the statistics to say how many are in print versus how many people want to buy, it's impossible to say that's quote. How difficult correct. is it with a new set being leaked like this to all suddenly have, instead of to be able to analyze you know, four or five cards a week, make an opinion on it, to have to have a whole set in front of you and go, I have to analyze the whole thing right now, go. Well, I'm going to answer this from two different angles. It's actually much easier to do it with a whole set in front of me, though it takes more time. But um, as a webmaster of a magic site that has received exclusive previews in the past, 
it's really, really disappointing. I mean, whenever we get an exclusive preview, our traffic doubles overnight. I mean, it doesn't stay that way, but it's just such a great source of new traffic. Like, you got yes. the preview Creeping Tar Pit. That card's phenomenal. And we got, you know, everyone found out about Creeping Tar Pit through client speculation or through links that point to two client speculation. And that's a tremendous boom for us. So, I mean, I understand what happened and how the uh, Lotus Noir situation all unfolded. And uh, I'm really just going to avoid that subject because it's kind of a sensitive issue for me. I'm kind of pissed off about it. But, uh, you know, these things happen, and we move on. But just from the strict perspective of, like, you know, an armchair analyst who has no stake in the process, it's a tremendous boom, you know. In, with that perspective, it's so much easier to take an entire step and go, okay, this is what standard looks like now. We're not making a guess card-by-card basis. Because, like I said before, you can't analyze a market or a format or a metagame on a case-by-case basis. You need to analyze it holistically. So for the armchair analysts at home, we can print out the spoilers, highlight things, circle things, make notes, build deck lists, and um, even though it's going to take longer to analyze all of those cards, it's a lot easier to see where they all fit into a match. League or the uh, league as the one that you know does the testing of you know the new stuff to kind of pseudo base where you guys come from on stuff sometimes. No, you're not talking about. The future, future league. At no, least, no, no, no. Right? I'm talking about the yeah. the other one that does. Like right now, there's a Splinter Twin deck that's been going. Oh, like on ma- on like works on Magic Workstation and stuff. Forgot what the thing is, and I'm sure there's now people yelling into their computers as they're listening to this. It's uh, it's I think it's part of the Magic League. It's a different yeah, okay. yeah. And they that they just um, testing. Not as much as. I'll be honest, um, and, and you, you're one of the people to remind me of it lately, not as much as we should. Um, my focus lately has been using Magic Online dailies uh, to gauge um, metagame sentiment, and I've been working on uh, a bit of quantitative analysis there, just counting up which cards appear, uh, which cards that aren't normally in deck lists appear more or less than normal. Like, for example, I made the absurd call on Philadelphia Phoenix about two weeks ago which is, I think, at this point, tripled on Magic Online. I bought a few hundred of them. And what happened was, I just said, wow, this is showing up in, like, every block deck list, but not in standard at all. So I'm going to go buy a bajillion of them. They were maybe eight cents, and sit on them until they become good. Luckily for me, they became good, like, the next week instead. So we really should be using those, and uh, I'm probably going to be working with a few people who might be interested in writing about that, to analyze that themselves and write about it, but uh, it's a great resource, and anyone who does this sort of analysis on their own should definitely pay attention. Just because we as a site don't have the, uh, we don't have a columnist who's doing it yet, we probably should, and we're, we're aware of that, and it's uh, it's on the list. I mean, the list is pretty long, but it's pretty high on the list. The Splinter Twin never got a home anywhere, and it became a bulk rare. If that uncommon and Splinter Twin becomes the deck, and supposedly, according to the testing, it's been crushing Squadron Hawk, and if anything can kill the Cog Cog Blade Menace, you know, you've got uh, an absolute gold mine on your hands. It's interesting. It's already happened. I mean... The the, the jump has happened. It's done. The trade's gone. You missed the trade a week. Oh, really? Um, People have... Oh, yeah. The, um... Well, Splinterton was actually never a bulk rare, oddly enough. Uh, One of the things I found by selling in in a store and selling online is that card command enough casual appeal? And uh, it, it, it always hovered around a quarter to 50 cents as opposed to the bulk rate of like 10 or 15 okay. cents. 
So they were, they were, and on Magic Online, they were around 50 cents also. I actually had a bunch and I got rid of them because I'm an idiot. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah, because I wasn't following the Magic League results and it didn't occur to me to be doing that at the time. So, yeah, you, the, trade is, the trades happen. I mean, dealers are buying them for five or six dollars now. Buying them. I've had people sitting on foil copies at 30 and not moving off of them. Um, now, I'm inclined to say that this is too much hype for a deck that's never won a tournament because the deck isn't even going standard. But at the same time, it's just like how old booster packs are priced. They're priced against what you could open, not what you most likely will open. So if the deck is good, the card will probably go up a little bit more. If it's not good, it'll sort of fade away slowly. Uh, and if you're one of the kind of people who was savvy and picked them up when they were cheap, I think now's a fine time to sell at least half of your stash of them. So at least that way you're, you've gotten in on the big jump, and now it's just a matter of squeezing out value as opposed to, you know, putting it on. When did you decide that it was jump to be a MTGO trader? I've always been messing around with MTGO. Uh, it's just, it's a really appealing platform to me because the the fact is all the transactions get fulfilled interesting or immediately. It's, an, it's interesting that the transactions can get filled immediately, which changes the market. Um, I don't have to order a card wait for it to ship, sell a card, ship it to the other guy, wait to get paid. I mean, I can go online, go to any box, spend my tickets, and uh, get my cards. It's done. I have the cards. They have my money. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, I'm actually not certain what the magic terms are about selling things on MTGO for cash. Uh, I actually don't remember, but... It, were one inclined to sell their event tickets for cash, which I know tons of people do, uh, it's actually almost as good as having money in your pocket because uh, of the fact that you sell it for PayPal money, and if you have a PayPal debit card linked to your account, you can actually just sell a ticket for dollars and use that money as a credit card immediately. And the immediacy of that is very appealing to me. The reason I got into it is because I saw how quickly prices changed on Magic Online. With Kuldota Phoenix, for example, um, they went from $0.08 cents to $0.20 cents in the span of less than 48 hours. Um, they're, they're actually probably higher now, but I haven't checked today. So what, what interests me is the fact that if you have a good trade, you can make the call, do the transaction, wait for the market to react, dump your stock, and cash out in the span of a day, if, if, if that's what the trade is. I like that because there's no shipping costs. There's no, there's really, aside from small PayPal fees, there's no transaction costs. And um, you don't have to deal with, uh, you know, a scumbag seller going, hey, well, I know you ordered 10 copies of this, but I'm only going to send you two. Um, it's done. The cards have changed hands. The trend of the money's changed hands. It's done. It's instant, and you get your money. Uh, at the same time, it's very easy to lose a lot of money because if you get, uh, if you make a sick call and buy 500 of a card and it does nothing, then, you know, you've just spent an hour pressing a bunch of buttons to lose your money. So I, it's the closest analog to a real stock market I've seen. Um, and the benefit is that there's no centralized information possible. Every bot has its own pricing mechanisms. There's a ton of different sites. So there's a, a huge opportunity for what I call information arbitrage, sorry, information disparity, uh, which is basically allowing you to arbitrage between sellers. I mean, I've seen situations where Seller A is selling a card at X dollars, and seller B is buying a card at 2X dollars. And I mean, the only reason that that transaction hasn't occurred yet is because seller A and seller B don't know each other's prices. 
I, as you know, buyer slash seller C, can enforce that transaction and make money. And there's opportunities like that all, all over MTGO. Now, just because, you know, I don't, they don't have to be concurrent. You know, they don't have to be, one guy doesn't have to be selling it low, and the other guy doesn't have to be buying it high in the same day. But knowing which bots sell cheaply and which bots buy high, you can usually swing cards back and forth like a real trader over the course of a day or a week or And that's the appeal of MTGO to me. Is you can, the second you get a good idea from a deck, you know, you see a deck list 4 hour daily or win a premier event on Magic Online, you go find as many bots as you can, you buy as many copies of the card you can, and um, you just make the trade. It bears mentioning that some bots and some bot chains really hate it when you buy them out. Um, and I've had a couple sellers actually contact me because they see my name on Magic Online, KB Reed. I'm not exactly a mystery. No. And a few people have asked me, hey, do uh, do me a favor. Could you not clean me out next time? And most of the time, I'll, you know, if, as long as they're not a jerk about it, I'll be nice. I'll say, yeah, no problem. Like, can you throw me a bone here or there, or, you know, share some info or give me something in return for, you know. But at the same time, there's a lot of bots that just don't care. If they're selling it at, they'll make their margin. So... Just bear in mind that some blockchains do not approve that. It's interesting. I, I never, I never thought of it that way. As far as what they think about that, and how difficult is it to keep that data of what bots are selling what for? Uh, is that something that can be done without too much difficulty, or is there a lot of time spent on that? <laughs> um, yes, uh, yes, to all okay. of that. It's difficult. Um, you need to have a good infrastructure for processing the data. And I'm, you know, when I do trading on MTGL, I do it for my, you know, with my own money, my own personal accounts, with no affiliations to any of my other businesses. It's kind of like, you know, if I really, if I was a big drinker, I would say it was, it was for your money. Um, I consider it like, yeah, you know, I consider it like Taco Bell money or whatever you'd call it, you know, just screw around money to play with. I don't care if I lose it, don't care if I win with it. Um, I have a, I actually don't want to give too much information away here, um, but I can tell you that with, without doing any programming or automation, it's still pretty easy to keep track of a lot of different bots' prices. Um, I will simply say this. Use wish lists in Magic Online all the time. Um, and, and anyone who doesn't know about those in Magic Online is doing a huge disservice. Basically, with a wish list, you build a, quote, deck in the deck editor, and you put on that list all the cards you want that you're interested in for whatever reason. Perhaps you're looking for a price check. Perhaps you're looking to buy them. Perhaps you're looking to resell them and one with their uh, retailing for. And you just say how many you want on the list and what cards they are. And you save that as a wish list, not as a deck. And then when you're in a trade with a, a bot or another person, you can just hit load wish list. So what I do is I keep a wish list with one of every card I'm trying to follow. And I mean, this, this will give most average people a good idea of where to start. Uh, I do more than this in terms of data processing, manipulation, and automation, but the average player can do this. You go, save a wish list, like let's say you're trying to follow Kubo for Phoenix and 10 other cards, and you just want to keep an eye on what 10 different bots are selling them for. You put the 10 bots in your buddy list, you save the wish list with all the cards you're trying to follow. You, load, you go to bot A, you load the wish list, get the price quotes. Copy and paste the bot's output where it says card, you know, card, price, card, price. Drop it into a document. Or card, bot B, do the same thing. That way, you're only doing about three clicks per bot you're trying to quote screen. 
Now, if you're a programmer, this is easy to automate, but that's not something I can really talk about. I don't really know my head through my ass when it comes to programming <laughs> yet. So that's what I'll do. And you can just jump it into a Word document and just do a straight-up find and go, well, Control-F, pull up a penis. Go through all the lists of the box. Um, you make sure you timestamp each one when you collect it. And then you can see, okay, well, these, this bot's selling it for more than these other bots. So either they're selling everything too high, which is very common, or they give something the other bots don't. So then tomorrow you check and you go, oh, well, he's still selling it that high and no one else is. Over the next week, five of those bots are selling it that high. And you just slowly learn who sells what at what prices, whose prices are good, whose prices are bad. And it's kind of like a wild west stock market. There's no one central repository for all the data but you can sort of be your own repository on a grassroots and hop level. But for you, that's got to be a lot of fun, just because of your background. It is. It is. It's a hoot. Like, you know, I've, I taught myself how to do stock trading one summer, made a little money, and all that, just learning how to think about the way markets operate and just learning how crowd sentiment works and how groupthink works and stuff was really important because, to me, I sort of look at it like a living, breathing organism. It's, to me, finance is, is just quantifying hype. That's what we're doing. And it's a hoot because I'm a big nerd. <laughs> and, and now let's talk about that. Since MTGO is one of the ways that you can be very competitive in Magic, you're, you mumbled on Twitter that you're talking about potentially getting back into competitive Magic. Yeah, I, I wouldn't take that too seriously just yet. Um, I was basically just musing aloud. But, I, I, you know, I do miss competing. I've been playing a lot on my cube lately, which is, it's a competitive cube. There's no rares, but it plays like a power cube. So I just miss the thrill of competition. I've missed, um, it's a different kind of, you know, it's a difference between stock trading and playing hold and poker, you know. I, I, it plays to almost all of my strengths, but I find that it's difficult to have time to play test to the point where I'm confident playing in a tournament. My last, my last good finish is I day two a Grand Prix in DC, and I, uh, I went, I think, what was it, 8 1 1 or 7 1 1 at a Star City Open in Indy, and I was the bowl boy at ninth place, which put me off competing for quite some time. So. I kind of have a chip, I'm not going to lie, I kind of have a chip on my shoulder. Um, I know I'm a good enough player to win the PTQ, to qualify for the Pro Tour. But frankly, looking at guys like, you know, I'll use Brad Nelson as a great example here, who's just just grindering all senses of the word. The guy plays more magic than anybody else I know. I don't have that kind of time to to put in, and I suspect most people don't either. And if, you're, if your job is trading magic cards, either because you own a store or because you run an online store or you're just doing the guy with a binder model, your focus has to be transactions per event. You know, you have to go to an event and turn over cardboard and get value and sell stuff to other dealers and network and schmooze and make contacts. It, you know, every, the, the 10 rounds or whenever you're playing are, you know, 10 hours you're not trading. And... The hours you're spending preparing for that tournament are hours you're not spending looking over deck lists for pricing purposes. On the other hand, when you're doing competitive play, you have a much better idea of what could be good. So the best model, in my opinion, is to have a small team of people together, some of whom trade, some of whom play, and all of whom can do either. That way, you have... 
a couple guys play testing who are informing the traders of, hey, here's what we're seeing in the metagame, uh, and here's what you should be buying, especially with a new set coming out this weekend. You know, the fact that we've been working with that new spoiler since it was leaked, I've had a couple of the guys in my store play testing it, and they're telling me what's good, what isn't. So we've had the advantage of saying, hey, well, this is what our testers are telling us. Here's where we should put our money. Yeah, I'm going to be really curious because uh, just from a personal look at this, uh, to see where things are being priced at already, like Karn and... Um, and uh, I'm not. I'm getting Bonehorn. I'm not. I'm getting my wrong equipment screwed up. The the new equipment that yes, Batterskull, and yeah. how quickly these could. I mean, Batterskull. If it's put in the Squadron Hawks deck, which it looks like it could be very easily, that could drive that card up thirty thirty five. Put it beyond the sword range, which would be wild. I mean, to think about that yeah. and. I mean, that's the hardest thing, I think, as just a casual observer of how pricing goes, is how quickly something that's already priced at a, at a decent dollar amount can just jump to that point of, wow, buying a set of four of those is ridiculous. Yeah, that's been something I've paid a lot of attention to. Uh, and for the record, batter skulls, like, Karn is, Karn's terrible. Uh, I, I said so on my set review of the Mythics, I mean... I can't condemn anyone for pre-selling pre for $50 because, I mean, you're the dealer. That's your job is to try to get as much as you can for them to pay for your boxes. But, like, to be real, that card is not going to see competitive play. Adder Skull, on the other hand, is absurd. Mm -hmm. That card does a lot of things right. And um, the Stoneforth Mystic in Standard until the fall, uh, I really don't see any hope of beating that card, aside from comboing out with, like, Splinter Twin. Uh, I have a Pyromancer Ascension build I've been working on that seems pretty solid, too. But, like, you know, Batter Skull's absurd, and I can definitely see it passing $25. Sort of War and Peace, however, not a chance. That card's terrible. Uh, the first time someone played that against me, he just looked me dead in the eye and went, man, you're even playing red. And I still wish this was sort of feasty then. <laughs> so, um, as far as, like, how to price those big mythics... Yeah. The, the odds are usually that they're going to go down, not up, because pre-sale prices almost always reflect the best-case scenario. And, and dealers aren't stupid. They understand that, and that's why they price them that way. Uh, I view it as a form of short-selling, which is a perfectly acceptable financial practice uh, for people who don't know. Uh, being long on something means I'm going to buy it now and hope to sell it for more later. Being short on something actually means... So, I'm going to try to explain this in a simple way. Someone's going to lend me the money, or someone's going to lend me the, uh, the card. I'm going to sell it now, and then I'm going to pay them that card's price in six months, which is ostensibly going to be lower. So what you're doing is you're selling high and buying low, and compensating the person with a card as opposed to the money. It's, it's kind of weird to explain without giving a, a full financial definition. But when I say I'm short on something or long on something, short means I think it's the price is going to go down and I'm acting accordingly. If I pre-sell Karn at $50 and I'm going to fulfill those orders in three weeks, a month, whatever, and then Karn goes down to 25 I can take your $50, buy a Karn, give you the Karn you paid. Okay. Well, anyway, when dealers are pre-selling their cards, as I just explained, it's a form of short selling because... If you haven't noticed, the sort of average value of the set 
seems to taper off by about 25 to 50% roughly after a set's been out for a while. That's because there's no reason for any dealer to pre-sell cards for less than they think they might be worth. So, for example, if I think cards are going to be $50, but I think batter skulls going to be 10 and you think batter skulls going to be $50, but you think cards are going to be 10 the dealers that pre-sell both for more than that because they need to cater to the best possible scenario for each card. The odds are that card won't stay $50, and the odds are that sort of War and Peace won't stay $25, but I do believe Batter Skull is the real deal. Um, so pretty much pre-ordering cards is, is, if you're a trader, is not the way to go, unless you see a tremendously underpriced asset. Um, it's really not the way to go, and I haven't really had very good luck with it myself, even though I consider myself an above-average trader. So when a new set comes out, it's important to sort of look more towards what old cards are going to become good. No, see Splinter Twin, as opposed to try to call the next big thing in the new set. How would things change financially if tomorrow they said that Stone's Forge Mystic was banned? Wow, tough call. I'm not really sure. Um, the swords would definitely lose a lot of uh, traction. Sort of uh, fees and fan would lose some money. Uh, though, uh, I think the reason that the, the sword is so good is because Stoneforge Mystic gives you a um, it gives you a body on which to put the sword, and it gives you a way to find it, and it gives you a way to cheat it in under counter magic. Without those things, the swords lack real power. And without that, Squadron Hawks... Um, are still good, but they just lack the, uh, the killing power of equipment. Because now you're paying full price for the swords on your main phase. And I don't know, I think the entire landscape changes the Stoneforge expands. It's hard, I really couldn't tell you at this point. I mean, every good competitive deck is either based on or based on beating that card. Going down any time in the near future, more than, I mean, it's like a, what, 80 something now, or right about 80, I think? It's been on a steady decline. It's been on a steady decline lately. Um, at its peak of 100 and 110, um, I was worried about a bubble. And though the bubble didn't burst, it's just been slowly deflating. Um, I sold a bunch of Jaces for 75 cash a couple weeks ago because, frankly, I don't see them going much higher. Uh, and I wasn't concerned about min-maxing every last dollar. And most people I've found are not very happy with Jace right now. There's... People who need them have them, um, and most people who don't have them are just as soon happy to build something else, like Valakut, or wait till they rotate out of standards. So my thought is it's going to sort of keep slowly sliding down as the demand uh, dies off, and uh, magic card prices don't tend to drop sharply until something specific happens, like a rotation, a banning, something like that. So... We're going to probably see Jace um, slowly slide down over the next couple months. Probably around mid to late June or July is when the big price drops are going to happen for stuff that's about to rotate out of standard. Um, so, like, this month is probably the right month to be trading away your Zendikar block stuff to full value. Like, get the hell out of Stoneforge Mystic for the time being. And all this stuff is going to recover when uh, Extended becomes relevant to the known quantity again. But, um... You can always sort of trade seasonally with these cards. Jace is not a good place to put your money at all. Um, like I said, I, I own zero. Um, I've owned zero. And I know a lot of other traders are actively tr- are, are trying to actively avoid working with Jace's. There's just so many better places to Card would have 
such a viability down the line because of Extended and it's seeing some play in Legacy. But like you said, everybody's got them, so who's going to want to buy them? You know? Yeah, and if people don't um, if people don't have them, they're not going to buy them. Right. Has there been a card that you looked at previously in the past that you undervalued that all suddenly skyrocketed to a number you would have never thought got to? None of the Reliquary is the one that's really been, really stands out in my mind. Um, when Zendikar got announced, it was, okay, it was a land-centric block and blah, blah, blah. Night of the Reliquary started out as a $10 card when, when Worldwide first came out. Or, sorry, Conflux first came out. Uh, and then, since it saw no play, it dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped for about a buck or two. Um, I don't really know what the hell I was thinking when I said, that doesn't seem that good. When Zendikar Fetchlands got spoiled, it, it went up quite some, to like four or five bucks. And I said, eh, it doesn't seem that good. And then it shot up to like 15 bucks, at which point I said, hmm, well, I don't seem that good at my job. So, it, I totally missed the call on that. Um, and every time I miss a call in that manner, I always try to look back and learn the lesson. Um, it's really easy, easy to be curmudgeon me and say, oh, well, that's not going to be good. It's a lot harder to sit down and put your money on the line and really analyze why a card could be good. Um, you know, thinking about, like, well, okay, you start off with the Knight of the Reliquary out. You already have two fetch lines in the graveyard, so you're looking at a 4-4 four, for four, three. That didn't really occur to me, you know. I had forgotten what it was like to play with fetch lines. I forgot how good they were. And it didn't really cross my mind that they would be coming out in the new set. So, again, it really, it's all about, like, what new cards are coming out. They're going to make old cards relevant. Um... Is there really missing a call because you didn't have the info and intentionally saying, no, that's not going to be good? I kind of thought the same thing with that Splinter Twin combo. I said, that seems terrible. You know, a, 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 ran, a creature and a creature enchantment, that's your win condition. You just lose to, to Doomblade. But I'm told that the deck is actually good, and uh, that's what I get for not being more involved in competitive magic. In general, about pricing and stuff like that, that's got to be difficult. You have to keep inventories in and out and constantly flowing. Has the... Rebirth, or I'm sorry, the continual growth of legacy changed how you want to personally trade, that you may focus more towards legacy cards because they're going up in value, or is it still your own personal focus when you're at a place to do leg, uh, to do standard? I prefer to do standard because I understand the format. Um, I don't really play legacy. I don't really follow legacy, only to the extent that I you know, try to read what's out there and I try to listen to people talk about it. Um, standard is kind of the trader's bread and butter because there's so many swings that happen so quickly. A lot of that's a result of the Star City Open series, which is basically pushing a standard tournament almost every weekend. And uh, that means the metagame is developing much quicker than ever before. Combined with all the new information sources like uh, Magic Online daily deck lists, standard changes so quickly. Uh, for example, I'm pretty sure if you followed the, uh, the Titan cycle over the, since they're uh, printing, you will have seen at one point every single Titan has been worth either a ton or nothing, except Primeval, which has always been worth a ton. Um, but I remember when the Frost Titans were a dollar or two, and then they shot up to like 15, and I remember when Grave Titan was cheap, and then it went back up, and then the Inferno Titan was all to nothing, and it went back up. The Sun Titan hasn't done too much because it was a pre-release promo, which is another bag of packs entirely. But yeah, you, standard just fluctuates so much, you can almost day trade it. Um, and on MTGO, you actually can day trade it. So legacy is good because every so often you'll hit like a you know double bag or triple bag or you know you'll you'll make you know five times your money, ten times your money. 
But that's also because a lot of things get unbanned or banned. Um, you're equally as likely to lose all, you know, to lose your shirt on survival of the fittest like you are to quadruple or quintuple your money on time supply. So legacy is kind of a gambling man's game, and um, it's also nice if you're doing a buy and hold strategy, which is not the way I work, because you know if you bought and hold Force of the Wills, you made a lot of money, but no trader would ever think, oh, I'll buy Force of Wills, they're going to double overnight. Even though they did, that doesn't seem like a likely scenario. Um, I'm not entirely sure that the current legacy prices are sustainable for the game, and I'm also not entirely sure that stuff like uh, Force Mill and Wasteland aren't going to get reprinted in a box set of some sort. So I'm just a little shy about working with legacy for all those reasons. I don't know the format. There's too many questions about reprintings and... um, also, you have the issue of like when a dealer gets bought out online, whether or not they're going to honor the orders. As a standard, you don't need to react quickly. You just need to be ahead of the curve. You know, Legacy, it's like it gets unbanned. Time for gets unbanned, and you try to buy out a dealership. What's to stop them from canceling your order? Nothing. Whereas, you know, no dealer's going to raise an eyebrow when I buy them out of Coldotha Phoenixes. If anything, they'll be laughing all the way to the bank. So it's just a totally different game, and it's one you can make a lot of money in, but it's not where I consider myself strong. Are you going to be at the Star City Games so Invitation? Yeah, uh, obviously. Okay. Plans change, but I I live close to Indianapolis, so I'll definitely be attending if at all possible. Are you going to be trying to get there as a player, or are you going to be there as just you I'm as a trader? Because I haven't really been play testing. Um, if my new Pyromancer Ascension deck is testing as well as it has been lately, I might try to grind in a last chance qualifier if there is one. Uh, but I'm probably just going to go to hang out, screw around, and see the people I haven't seen in a while. The trade binders will be out in force, of course. But uh, I, I don't think it's going to mark my return to competitive play. Never I was kind of thinking that, that that because it would be a good place to do real well in as far as making a comeback into competitive play. Well, I'm not qualified play, for the invitation. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, like I said, if this pyro that keeps taking good care of me, maybe who knows? Apologizing ahead of time that those of you who are listening, there will be some small technical difficulties ahead this recording. Uh, this is about the point. Wrap it up. Give your final thoughts. Let people know where they can contact you and give a little more promotion. Where can people reach you? Well, the best way to reach me is through my website, quietspeculation.com. There's a contact form on there, um, and those messages will always be directed to the right person. So if it's a concern about the site or something you want to talk to me about, I'll see most of it. So if you have questions for me, questions about the site, anything, please feel free to ask. Um, since day one, I've always said I want to be as accessible to my readers as possible. So please don't feel like, you know, I'm some big guy who runs some big website. I'm just some dude like the rest of you guys trying to make it magic. So please reach out, feel free, get in touch, um, ask what you want to ask. You're also on Twitter. I am. Uh, yes, Twitter, Facebook, all of that. I'm Kelly Reed on Twitter. Um, you can find me on Facebook under the same name, and uh, other than that, that's the best way to reach me. By far, follow me on Twitter. Uh, I always do little updates about what I'm thinking in Magic and uh, other things, talking about what I might be investing in or what I'm playing, or just random thoughts about the game, being curmudgeon about Callblade in existence, that kind of thing. <laughs> and if any of the people who are listening to this podcast aren't on Twitter, you're missing a big bet. That's the best thing to happen to Magic the Gathering and Richard Garfield. Definitely help shape a community and be able to get to people quicker. And actually, like you said, you can be ahead of the curve 
by having someone say, oh, look at this, and then all suddenly it's a deck list and it catches your eye. A day later, it's on MTGO's top, you know, it's made a, a one an event. You know, you've gotten information sometimes 24, 48 hours ahead of the rest of the curve, yeah. which is nice. And, uh, as more people, it's, it's a great luxury, and as more people start getting on Twitter, um, the number of people that are, quote, ahead of the curve because of it, start to set the status quo, so the people who aren't on Twitter are actually going to be the Luddites who are left behind. So there's really no reason. I know some people will say, well, what am I going to do on Twitter? You don't have to tweet. Just read. Just follow the people that you follow. Follow people like myself and John Medina who are involved in trading. Follow pros like uh, Brian Kibler, Patrick Chapin, and Luis Vargas to see what the competitive guys are saying. You know, so, uh, Follow the site editors like uh, Trick Jarrett from Gathering Magic. Um, follow, like, you know, Star City's got a uh, tweet account for uh, their buyers so they can tell you what they're buying stuff for. There's just so many different ways to follow so many different people, and that'll let you accomplish so many different goals. There's so many people on Twitter already, and there's really, it's, at, it's hit critical mass. It, it's been at critical mass for quite some time, but in the name of the, the training game, the name of the game is information. The name of the game is understanding what the market as a whole is thinking. And the more samples you can get from each individual piece of the market, the better. And then you have, you know, certain people are more qualified to opine about different things. You know, I wouldn't necessarily follow myself to find out what's hot on the competitive circuit, just like I wouldn't necessarily follow Brian Kibler to find out, like, what the best trade of the week is. So pick and choose who you follow. And, uh, you know, make lists on Twitter so you can process information. And in general, as trading is just about information, so get your information infrastructure intact. You know, skim the bots for data, look at the websites like, you know, Channel Fireball, Cool Stuff Inc., Star City Games, all that stuff. Listen to podcasts and just be ravenous about devouring information wherever you can find it. You know, you don't even have to organize it. Just take it in, and in your subconscious, you will start to notice trends, and you'll start to notice people talking about things. Like, why are people talking about Splinter Twin all of a sudden? I didn't. I haven't heard a thing about Splinter Twin since it came out. Yet all of a sudden, there's someone tweeting about it, and another person tweeting about it. And the sooner you spot that trend, the sooner you can do the research, look at deck lists, talk to your friends, and then you find out, oh, there's a deck that's being played. So being able to process information is so important, and Twitter makes that so, so easy. you got to be honest. I appreciate your time today. Again, this is Robert Martin for another episode of Meta Magic with Kelly Reed, signing off.